0: Well, we just began a new series on the resurrection last week, uh, Pastor uh, Joseph Sharon uh, preached on the power of the resurrection and how it compels us into mission, it was fantastic, um, and we're going to spend a, a few weeks as we head towards Easter, uh, just really circling around First Corinthians 15, just this one chapter on the resurrection, Uh, I uh, would commend to you just our resources online to go take a look at those there. Um, uh, We have a a series guide there, uh, some commentaries on just this chapter, uh, and some information you're going to find super helpful uh, online there. So you can study this along with us and also uh, talk about it um, with your groups. Okay, as we head in, um, we're going to take the resurrection and kind of take it as a bucket, right? Uh, This main idea of the resurrection. And then we're going to circle around it and throw kind of... uh, Uh, different ideas on what is uh, critical about the resurrection or or what do we learn about the resurrection from this angle, kind of different angles in 1 Corinthians 15. And like I said last week, we looked at the power of the resurrection to sustain us in suffering, to carry us through persecution, to to focus our calling, uh, all in response to what God has done in the resurrected Christ. And this week we're going to look at just this one idea of why Jesus' resurrection is the most logical explanation for what occurred after Jesus died. Uh, Why Jesus' resurrection is the most logical explanation to what occurred in history uh, after Jesus' death, that he actually rose from the grave and is alive today. Why that's the most logical reason for what occurred there. Uh, But before we get there, I want to teach us what what we'll do every Sunday as we head into and prepare for uh, Easter this year. Uh, You you may have done this if you have a church background, uh, but maybe not. Uh, uh, There's this little phrase uh, where the, the preacher or the person up front says, "'He is risen,' and then everyone responds with, "'He is risen indeed.'" All right, so let, let's do that together. I'm going to say it with gusto and then say it back to me. He is risen. He is risen you can do better. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen do you believe that? <laughs> People in the first service did that too. I was ready for it this time. Do you really believe it though? Okay, fine. I don't need to preach this week. (laughs) Does your life look any different? As though there's a resurrected Jesus who overcame death and now embraces you in living relationship that you and I have a relationship with the living God himself. That he actually conquered the grave. That that death is no longer. That we know for all of eternity we will walk with Jesus into a a life where there will be no sin. Everything that's broken will be mended. Everything that's wrong will be made right. Do we actually believe that and live like that today? Well, I want to tell us this morning, it's the most logical response A life lived in response to the resurrected Jesus, because it's the most logical explanation for what occurred after Jesus died. Uh, So as we get there, I want to set a bit of a context for 1 Corinthians 15, and then we'll get into the reasons why I think this is just uh, simply happened in history. Uh, The the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter. Uh, Paul writes it to the Corinthian church. It's a church he started in his second missionary journey. He, uh, you know, he, he went from Jerusalem and went and uh, kind of proclaimed the good news all around Turkey and Greece. And, and Corinth is found in modern-day Greece. And, and in his second trip around that area, he preached the gospel there and lots of people came to Christ. And, and then it became, like most churches, a big mess. So this first Corinthians that we have in our scripture is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He wrote one letter to say, hey, guys, you got to straighten up in the areas of sexuality, and in the areas of how you treat each other, and the way uh, that you uh, uh, sue each other, different things like this. And, and then the Corinthians wrote Paul back a letter and said, I don't think so, basically. <laughs> That's what they said. And so Paul says, well, I do think so. And he writes back a long letter, the letter we have in our scriptures as 1 Corinthians. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we see some just amazing things, that we have a uh, physical hope, that we are going to have uh, physical bodies in the new resurrection, that Jesus' first resurrection is tied to a physical hope, a new creation here on earth with no sin. Uh, we see things like at the end of the letter where, where Paul just proclaims just uh, in victory, he says, death, where is your sting? If Jesus is resurrected, there is no more death. He's overcome it for us who believe. And then we see uh, things that maybe won't make sense, and we'll get to them eventually. Things like Jesus is the first fruits of a resurrection to come, or there's a first Adam and a second Adam, and what the heck does all that mean? So we'll get there when we get there. But today, all I want to do is say the resurrection is the most logical or reasonable explanation for what occurred after Jesus died. Uh, Paul will begin, and he says, the gospel culminating in the resurrection, it, it's the super important, it's the, the most important thing in our faith, and, and that it then actually happened. It, it's super important, and it actually happened. Verses 1 to 3, where Paul says, this is super important. He says, I'd remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he'll say, I delivered this to you, this gospel, uh, as of first importance that I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then a whole list of others. It is super important. Uh, the text says, I want to remind you. Uh, but that's not actually what the Greek says there. It says, I want to make known to you. I want to proclaim to you. I want to I just shout it boldly at you. Uh, and because he's already done this for the Corinthians and, and they have forgotten, it, it makes sense to translate it. I want to remind you because he's now bringing to the forefront what they have forgotten. He's making known to them. Hey, look, don't forget the gospel, which culminates in the resurrection of Jesus. It's that important, and maybe you've forgotten it. That There is some uh, mystery or magic or or, or response of uh, jubilance and joy in the beginning of your relationship with Jesus because you realize, man, he's risen, he's alive, and he's alive to me. But you've forgotten that. Or maybe, man, I, I kind of just moved past the elementary things of the gospel, and now I'm about the deeper theology that I find in the scriptures. Or, or now I'm about serving others and loving others. This is what is central to my Christianity, not the gospel. Or, or I'm about making myself better as a human and becoming more moral, not the gospel. And what Paul says is here, hey, look, always be about the good news of the gospel. It's of first importance, he says. Don't forget it. Sometimes we think that the gospel is kind of the elementary ABCs of Christianity, but it's actually A to Z. It's everything Paul says, first importance, primary importance, core to who we are. It's super important. The content of it is simple, but it's life transforming. The content he states simply in verses three and following. Christ died. He was buried. He raised and he appeared. It's that simple. First, Christ, Jesus. He came, and before He died, He lived. He he ran towards us. He ran towards you and me. He lived this perfect life that you can't live, I can't live, we don't live. He's always obedient. He always thought the right things, always did the right things. He was always kind and loving when He needed to be, and direct and angry when He needed to be. He was perfect, and He lived. But then He died. Then he died. Christ died. As a sufficient sacrifice, he hangs on a tree in our place. You see, he lived perfectly. We do not. He says, I'll substitute myself for you. I will hang myself on a tree in your place to take the wrath of God on your behalf, Matt. A sufficient substitute in our place. Christ lived. He died. Then he was buried. He's actually dead. But then he raised the newness of life. He came out of the grave. He conquered death. He's he's fully powerful, more powerful than death itself, that that he came to then run and embrace us by the Spirit to to live in a relationship with the living God, that he's he's powerful, he's alive, he's transforming you, he's transforming me, and he will return one day to make all things new. This is the good news of the gospel. It's simple, but it's life-changing. It's profound and powerful. I'd like to summarize it. I'll take kind of how Keller summarizes it. I think it's a a helpful phrase. The gospel is simply this, God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I, I like to add a little piece because that's the ground level. That's the individual level of God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is true. And also God redeems his creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's kind of a 30,000 foot view of the gospel. He rescues us and he redeems all of creation through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Super important, absolutely critical, and the resurrection actually happened. Actually, Paul would say, all this is, is useless, futile, we're all liars, we're to be pitied among all people if the resurrection actually didn't happen. The gospel could could be super important, but if this didn't actually happen, who cares? So what I want to show us now is that it's the most logical explanation for what actually did happen in history after Jesus was died and was buried. There's three main reasons, a couple reasons kind of uh, under each of those to, uh, to explain each one. Uh, The first reason, I believe it's the most logical explanation, that the resurrection actually did occur, is that it's embedded into history. The resurrection is embedded into history. Uh, Verses 5 to 9 put it this way. Uh, And then Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, it's an Aramaic name. Then to the twelve, that's his followers. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother. Then he appeared to the apostles. And last of all, one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. So Jesus appears in history. This is no myth. This isn't some story that we tell of some mystical Jesus who wasn't here. He actually uh, died, was crucified, he was uh, beaten, he was speared on a tree, he he, he was uh, put in a tomb, but then he appeared, he came back and he talked to people. In his body, resurrected, appeared. Cephas, uh, the 12, 500, James, Paul. Uh, We read about these appearances all through the scriptures. In John chapter 20 and 21, we see uh, Jesus comes back to Peter and, and, and a few others, and they're around this fire, and, and Jesus, he's like, hey, can I have some fish? He likes fish, they're fishermen, they eat. And, and he eats in an actual physical body, and he talks with them, and he, he tells John some things, he, he welcomes Peter back in, it's this conversation, he, he talks to Thomas, Thomas is like, I don't believe you, and, and Jesus is like, hey, put your fingers in the wounds on my hand and side. He appeared. Actually, it's no myth. It's within history. He shows himself. Uh, Luke chapter 24, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and Peter, these two disciples and followers of his, uh, Peter being uh, the main disciple we just mentioned. And uh, he's walking on this road and he explains to them the scriptures and, and he's talking with them, teaching them. He's a physical person back, resurrected. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, the same phrase is used. He appeared to his disciples. And then this crazy phrase, he was there for 40 days teaching them. 40 days. Days. the resurrected Jesus walking around teaching for 40 days in history not as myth recorded as a account of what actually happened versus a myth to be told I, I love how Paul puts it then he appeared in verse 6 to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep do you get what Paul's doing there he talked to 500 people at one time. They're still alive, most of them. Some have dead, but you can go talk to them. <laughs> he said, hey, ask them. They saw him alive and walking around for those 40 days teaching and talking. It's embedded into history because Jesus actually comes back and shows himself physically to followers and skeptics alike. It's also embedded into historic texts. The resurrection is a historical thing. It's not a myth. It's embedded first into the uh, biblical texts, where, uh, which were written as history about who Jesus is and what he did, but also then uh, became what are the central texts that uh, created the Christian movement, but are historic texts, uh, eyewitnesses corroborating what has uh, occurred in Jesus' resurrection. Uh, but also, this is in non biblical texts. I brought a couple quotes with me. I'd like to read a few of them. A Tacitus, a Roman historian, uh, often thought of as the greatest Roman historian, uh, writes in the Annals of Tacitus. This is he's writing a history of Rome, and he's writing it for Nero and others and and, and then he starts talking about Nero and Nero is slaughtering a ton of Christians and Tacitus writes down the reason here that uh, he's trying to uh, convince the Roman people that he didn't place an order to burn down Rome, and uh, so then it says, so he decided uh, Nero substituted as the culprits, those to blame, uh, to be punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathing, uh, loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled or called Christians. So Nero says, I'm going to blame the Christians. This is in, uh, and, and Tacitus writes, Christus, or Christ, Jesus, the founder of the name of this movement, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius and was sentenced by the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious, this pernicious superstition, as a moment was checked only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of this original disease, but in the capital itself where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and find vogue or chic. (laughs) Uh, Do you see what uh, Tacitus is saying? He's saying, uh, the one who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, well, he was dead, but then this pernicious superstition, this evil superstition uh, arises. He's resurrected, and and, and what was as a dead movement now has come to life, not just in Judea, but even in our capital city, and it's growing like crazy. We can't stop it. Uh, So whether the resurrection be true or not, Tacitus and others are looking in, scratching their heads, saying, ah, something's going on here. Josephus, a Jewish historian, who has his problems, but in antiquity, he writes this. About this time lived Jesus, a wise man. And then he goes on a little bit, and then he says, Pilate condemned him to be crucified. Those who had come to love Jesus originally did not cease to do so, for he appeared to them on the third day restored to life. And so again, a Jewish historian looking in saying, And he was crucified, uh, so the story goes, and then he was risen to life, so the story goes. Pliny the Younger uh, writes a few years later a very similar quote to Tacitus' I won't spend our time there now. So uh, three extra biblical quotes uh, looking in at least saying something has occurred here. What do we do with it? Maybe he's risen. The last reason this is embedded into history, this is a, a birth of a historical movement right at the focus point of Jesus' resurrection. And it's a movement that no one at that focal point would have wanted going. So there's every reason to stop it, yet it breaks out among every social strata uh, in rural areas, in cities, uh, uh, through, across every culture in Italy, in Africa, uh, in Turkey, all over the place. And it's a movement no one would have wanted going at that moment. Uh, think about the Romans. They, they crucify him under Pontius Pilate. Uh, we just read about it in an extra-biblical text. He's crucified, and the Romans, what they want is stability and power over all their colonies and provinces. It's why Pontius Pilate was there, was the, to keep the peace and keep it all settled. So uh, certainly, uh, slay a one who's leading an uprising. He, he ought to be dead. The Jews didn't want this. They wanted to keep orthodoxy of what they felt like was true religion and true worship of God, certainly not this uh, spurious leader, Jesus. And they wanted to keep a system which they had learned to live in, a religious system that they didn't want broken or changed. They didn't want the movement going. Romans didn't want the movement going. Certainly the guards didn't want this movement going, right? You see, the the guards uh, would pay with their life if that body who was in the tomb they're protecting would be taken if that body goes missing, then the guard substitutes his life for the death and uh, removal of that body. So these Roman guards who are stationed outside of the tomb of the dead body of Jesus would not want this movement to get going. Actually, no other religious leader uh, uh, purports to say, I am a resurrected leader, right? Like, uh, you saw me dead and now I'm resurrected. Why? Because it's too easy to prove wrong. Just show them. Look, no one wants this movement going, and yet it breaks out everywhere. Just show the dead body. Just show the dead body. A friend of mine grew up in the Middle East. He says that's just what they do with dead bodies is to shame them and drag them through the street. Just show the dead body and the whole thing is done. But it's not done. And actually, 2,000 years of celebrating, worshiping the Jewish community on Saturday immediately shifts to Sunday in a miraculous kind of way. If you've ever led within a church, you know change takes time. And boom! From Saturday to Sunday, they're now worshiping the resurrected king. This is embedded in history. He appeared for real to real people in real time. It's written in both biblical and extra-biblical texts. And there is explosive growth. That occurs right around the resurrection. Uh, but maybe, maybe these gospel writers and others reporting on this, they're, maybe they're lying. Maybe it's just a lie. They, they've written down a lie and, and written it in a way that uh, we might believe this is the resurrected Jesus. And here's what I want to say. The second reason, not just is the resurrection embedded into history, it's a terrible lie. This is written as a terrible lie if it's supposed to be a lie, which means it's probably true. If you're trying to tell a different story of what what did not actually occur, you write a much better lie than this to prove your point. Uh, But notice how Paul talks about it. He says... This is according to the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, here's what he's doing. He's saying the scriptures in the Old Testament, they foreshadowed and they foretold this uh, one who would come and die and resurrect on our behalf. This is the culmination of the story. Our Savior is here. And then when Jesus shows up is he, he's walking to Jerusalem to be crucified, he says three times uh, in the book of Mark, he's like, hey, look, I'm going to die then I'm going to be resurrected and it's going to be awesome. He actually doesn't, he doesn't say that at the end, but, but he says, I'm going to do this. And, and Paul reports, I said, the scripture said this was going to happen. Jesus said it's going to happen. And then they simply just tell it how it happened. They don't tell it as a great lie because in a great lie, you make yourself look trustworthy and make you make yourself look good. Because if you're going to believe something so crazy, it better be a trustworthy story. It better be tip-top shape, pinpoint perfect. But what we have in the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, is kind of just the details you would find in a a normal or historic story that actually happened. Uh, Take uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. Uh, Jesus is being arrested in the garden, and, and these guards come, and and then there's this guy there in a cloak, and he's got just a cloak on, and, and one of the guards grabs him as he's running, and he runs away naked without his cloak on, and, and Mark writes this down. He's like, man, it, it, you know, it's crazy. They came to arrest Jesus, and then this guy runs away naked. Why, why even put that detail? That has nothing to do with the story unless it just actually happened. And, and then, uh, you know, Peter, in that same moment of the uh, arresting of Jesus, uh, Peter's like, hey, I'm going to come to your aid here, Jesus. And he takes his sword out. He lops off this guard's ear, and, and the ear falls to the ground. Jesus looks at Peter. He condemns him for doing this. He's like, hey, put your swords away. We don't need that here. He picks up the guy's ear and puts it on his head. And he's like, what, what, what's this, how does this move the story forward at all? It's just a detail of something that happens. He, these guys are just writing this down and saying, here's how it went down. One of my favorite moments is three days later. Jesus has been in the tomb, and and you know the disciples are scared, hiding in their houses as cowards uh, because they've seen their leader and who was supposed to be their savior crucified. And and, and then uh, get this: so John is writing this in John chapter twenty, verse four. In John 20, uh, verse 4, John's writing, and he and Peter are good buddies. They're part of the three, Peter, James, and John, who are really close with Jesus. And here's what John writes. Uh, They're going to go to the tomb because the women have just come back, and they've said, hey, look, I think he's risen, like he said he was going to do. His body's not there at the tomb. So Peter and John, of course, they want to check it out. Verse 4 of chapter 20 in John. Both of them... John who's writing, and Peter, both of them were running toward running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why do you write that? Well, if you play sports or if you're a dude, you know why you write that I won that's what John's saying. We were racing to the tomb, me and Peter, and I beat him there like I, run, I won the race, like I showed up to the tomb first and and, and there's no reason to include that detail other than the fact that John's writing is like, we got to the tomb, and, and what was awesome about it is I won the race. <laughs> no, what's was awesome, what he'll actually tell them is that Jesus' body was not there, and then Jesus will appear to them a bit later. Now, see, the details that are included in this story, just eyewitness, normal details, you, that you would have thrown in there if it actually happened. But also there are details that throw a lot of mud on the story. Uh, they're kind of, you would not have written it this way if you were trying to prove your point and, and to cover up the fact that Jesus is still dead, but you want to say he's resurrected. Uh, for example, and we mentioned it uh, just a second ago, that the women are the first ones to show up at the tomb. Uh, so here's what that highlights. One, the, the storytellers, uh, John and, and Luke and others, uh, they're writing this down, what actually happened, and, and they're writing down the details that show them to be fools and cowards. Those who are supposed to lead this mighty movement hiding in their homes. Because it actually happened that way. See, see the women uh, went to the tomb in courage, even after the crucifixion of Christ, three days later. And they show up, uh, probably with a bit of hope of, I wonder if he is resurrected. And they go, and the men are all hiding back at home. Uh, you wouldn't write that in there if it didn't occur that way. And, and also, uh, just for the point of, of argument, to, to, to write a trustworthy statement or of accounts that says, hey, he is risen. You wouldn't write that in there because in the first century, women weren't even allowed to give account uh, witnesses in court. Their testimony wasn't counted as valid just because they were women, which is crazy. But if you were writing a lie, you wouldn't have said, hey, let's stake this all on the women in the first century that these disciples are writing this. And you certainly would have highlighted the fact that Peter, man, the the one who's going to spearhead the whole movement at first, was such a coward. He denied Jesus three times to a little girl around a campfire and now is hiding in his home as a, as a coward. You know, it's also a terrible lie, be, lie because it's not synthesized. Now, here's what you do if you tell a lie. Uh, mom comes home. The vase is broken. You got two siblings. Uh, here's what's happened right before mom comes home. If the vase is broken, all right, let's figure out what happened with the vase being broken. All right, a dog, yeah, dog. Dog came in the house, what happened next? Hit the vase over, perfect. What color was the dog? Brown, okay, brown, got it, okay. Dog runs out, yeah, no, yeah, okay. Then we close the door, thankfully, the dog didn't attack us, face is broken. You synthesize the lie. You get the details down. You you make sure it's all coherent so that when you tell it, it's like seamless and perfect, right, because it actually happened. Mom, a dog broke the vase, Uh, it was a brown dog, What? what? That's your sister. Was it a brown dog? It was a brown dog. Yeah, right. And so we get all the details down. But when you see these eyewitness accounts in the gospels, it, was, it, was it one angel or three angels at the tomb? Oh, who said what first? Uh, 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 what happened when, when Jesus said this to, to Mary? And, and you, you read all these details at first where you're like, man, this doesn't jive together. It's not synthesized. It's not like this perfect tale that all fits together. Now, as you do read it, you see none of it contradicts and it. it does fit together. But, but what you see is just an eyewitness account from those who saw he is resurrected. It's a terrible lie. It's just actually what happened. Most likely true, logically seems true. And lastly, last reason, the unexplainable transformation of Jesus' followers. Because maybe they were done a lie, but then, you know, if you're like me, you say, look, maybe these guys just stole the body. Maybe they stole the body because they knew if we make this true, then, hey, look... Man, we're kind of going to be the men. See, we're looking back on what actually occurred. This amazing movement explodes. But, but see, this gained them nothing in their current circumstance. And, and, and so they had no reason to steal the body. But here's what occurs. Uh, when they see the resurrected Jesus, there's this unexplainable transformation in each of their lives, which is actually very explainable if he is resurrected. See, they went from uh, being cowards to being these crazy men with their gospel. They went to hiding in their homes to being heralds of what had occurred after they saw him resurrected. The list of names of the people he appeared to, right? Let's just look at what happened in some of their lives. And at great cost to themselves, by the way. Gaining them nothing, they're simply loving people, caring for people, and saying he's resurrected. Gaining nothing, actually just their deaths. And Peter. Peter goes from being this coward remember he denies Jesus around this fire and then then Jesus resurrected comes and talks with him and welcomes him in as a friend and forgives him the resurrected Jesus there alive and then what we see in Peter's life is he just becomes this wild man for the gospel he's preaching like crazy he even stands in front of all these authorities who can kill him when before he couldn't stand in front of this little girl around the fire. Now he stands in front of all these authorities who have the power to kill him. He says, do whatever you want. Uh, he is risen. I saw him. It's the only thing that accounts for this massive change in his life to the point where he's uh, executed, hung upside down in Rome on a tree, crucified because he's saying, I follow this resurrected Savior. Do, it, do to me what you please. Like he can't take it back. He's seen him risen. What about Paul? Paul is over here before Jesus is resurrected, and he's persecuting the church. And then, as one untimely born, he calls himself, he came a different way than the disciples. He sees a, a vision of the resurrected Jesus who comes and talks with him in physical form. And his life is radically transformed. And then on the back end, uh, he he again stands in front of the people that used to love him in the Jewish sect. And now they hate him, and they're trying to kill him too. And he's like, hey, look, let me just tell my story. I saw him resurrected. He says this three or four times at the end of Acts. And then he too is executed in Rome. Gains him nothing, costs him everything. And, And the whole while they're just selflessly living for others, talking about who Jesus is and what he's done. James the Just, who's mentioned here, that's Jesus' brother. It, it, it's amazing. It's like, this is Jesus' brother who's worshiping him as the Savior. If you've ever had a brother or sister, you're like, look, that doesn't happen with siblings. <laughs> so, and that actually is not what was uh, James's situation. In uh, John chapter 7, verse 5, we see that James is one of the brothers or sisters who's mocking Jesus when he comes to his hometown. You know, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Yeah, James is there saying, that's my brother. He's just some lame old brother in John chapter 7. But then he sees the resurrected Jesus, and something goes off where he's like, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to serve him with my whole life to the point where James Just is found up on a temple, a synagogue, and he's cast off because he keeps saying, I- I'm trusting in Jesus as a savior And he's thrown to the ground there, club him on the ground, and pile him in stones. And all the while, he's praying to his half-brother, Jesus, who is God. It makes no sense. But it makes total sense, logical sense, if Jesus actually is resurrected. It's embedded into history. It's a terrible lie. It must be true. And lastly, the unexplainable transformation of Jesus' followers. But here's the deal. Uh, if, you're, you're, if you're skeptical of this, well, none of these reasons, you don't really care. It's not a logical decision for you. It's a longing kind of decision of what is actually true. It's a gut-level decision. And 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 we even, uh, who proclaim to be Christians and live in response to the resurrected Jesus, it is often the gut-level stuff that draws us away, that, that we live as though he is not resurrected. See, the reasons we don't believe or live like Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they're not often logical reasons. Because I think it actually is most logical that he did raise from the dead. We just looked at three main reasons for such. But here's the reason I think that often gets us. Other Christians. If Jesus is resurrected, man, why do Christians live like that? With hypocrisy towards me or judgmentalism towards me or condemnation towards me or lack of love towards others. Man, certainly Jesus isn't risen. Well, we say it implicitly in our hearts and our minds. We long for something different. Or maybe suffering in your own life as a Christian or seeing suffering in someone else's life has convinced you he's not alive, he's not risen. If God is alive, if God is risen, then man, certainly I would not have suffered like this. That could not have happened to me in my past. Or I would not be struggling in this kind of illness right now. or, Or this or that other Christian wouldn't have had that demise in their life. He's not risen. Or maybe it's a contradiction in the scriptures. You read it and say, man, that can't be true. And if that's not true in that scripture, this says this and that says this, I can't trust him. He's not risen. Or maybe it's just if you're being honest with yourself, I want to set the compass for my own life. The direction I live, the way I go, and my moral, my moral, what is right or what is wrong. Now, see, here's the thing. I think the resurrected Christ is the most logical explanation for what occurred in that time, but I also think it is the most truest thing, the thing we long for in our lives to be true in all these different areas. See, we look at other Christians who are so hypocritical or judgmental, and and certainly if Jesus is resurrected, uh, people couldn't live like that. Well, here's what we're actually saying. I wish they actually lived more like Christians than they live. I wish they actually followed the resurrected Christ more than they do, that they were more loving, more kind, more self-sacrificial, more true, more honest. If he is risen, they would live differently. But what we long for is the fact that he actually is risen, that we would all live differently and treat each other like he is risen. Or what about the suffering we see in our own lives as Christians? Man, if he is risen, you're not suffering alone. It's what you long for. It's what is the most true. And actually, if he is risen, he's coming back to mend the brokenness in your life and in this world. If he is risen, what a great truth it would be it's what we long for it's what's true what about the contradictions of the scripture if he is actually risen what we would do is we would uh, have faith seeking understanding of his word the risen king and what we would read is, and we would see contradictions we'd say oh, i wonder what the answers to that are and and i'll investigate them honestly and then what we would come to find is uh, tons of theses and papers have been written about any supposed contradiction and in a way we would say oh actually there are a lot of feasible reasons to explain what i thought was a contradiction If he is risen, we have faith seeking understanding. Or the compass of our directional lives or our moral lives. If he is risen, there is no one I would rather hand my whole life to and authority to. He's a God who loved me so much to chase me down, to die in my place, and then raise to newness of life, embrace me in relationship, and walk me in his ways that are trustworthy and good. If he is risen. See, I think the resurrection is the most logical explanation, but I also think the resurrection meets the deepest longings of our heart, the gut-level reasons of our life that we make choices. He is risen. This will transform your life. That did for Paul. And Paul says, you know, I was the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am his grace towards me it wasn't in vain on the contrary i worked harder than any of them though it was not i but the grace of god that was in me he says it transformed my whole identity my whole life everything about me that's what we're going to look at next week how the resurrected christ reshapes every piece of our identity i cannot wait to talk about that together every week we, we we're reminded of what is of first importance in our lives now the good news of the gospel that we have a resurrected Jesus. That, that as the words of 1 Corinthians put it, that, that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That it was buried, that it was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That, that we have a Savior uh, who lived a perfect life and then whose body was broken in our place. And, it, and then he, he bled and He died, but, but then He resurrected the newness of life. And it makes complete logical sense. But it also answers the longings, the deepest truths of our heart that we long for. If you don't believe this morning, I say, give him a chance. <laughs> Embrace him, ask him in. He's risen alive, he'll come in, he'll change your whole life. And if you do believe that he has risen this morning, well then take and eat and be reminded man what a savior you have he really did rise from the dead he's really in relationship with you now he really has power over the grave he's god himself and follow with everything you've got stand firm in the good news of the gospel which you are being saved right now one last time before we take communion he is risen He is risen. He is risen. risen. risen Take and eat. Being reminded of your resurrected Savior who will come again to make all things new.